Welcome to the By Way of Commandment podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the finer points of his doctrine. Join us as we study the gospel through the scriptures and standard works of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Welcome back, everyone, to the By Way of Commandment podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Ryder. Um, I have a very uh, interesting and exciting episode today. Um, I've been, as many of you know, I've been studying Hebrew for the last year or so, and um, I've been able to, from time to time, put some of that to good use for these episodes and share with you guys a few things that I've learned uh, in, about the Hebrew language and how it relates to our theology as uh, as a church, as, as Latter-day Saints. Um, so today, as you can see on the screen here, um, I want to be looking at the word veil. Um, now, I have something really cool that I want to share with you guys that I learned. I am by no means an expert in Hebrew at all, but I feel like I stumbled on something that is pretty cool um, and really exciting and I think helps us to better understand the purpose of the veil um, and a little bit deeper meaning um, behind the veil. So, um, I want to look at here, this is Veil, um, this is from the study guide of the scriptures um, on the church website, <clears throat> excuse me, and it says, uh, under Veil, we have a, a few different uh, ways that we can use the term Veil, right? So uh, right here it says, a word used in the scriptures to mean, one, a divider separating the areas of the tabernacle or temple, uh, two, the Veil is a symbol for the separation between God and man, uh, you know, think about uh, when we pass through the veil to come into mortality, right? And then we'll pass again through the veil uh, to go into uh, immortality, into the spirit world. Um, number three, a thin cloth worn by people to cover their face or their head. And number four, the veil is a God-given forgetfulness that blocks people's memories of the pre-mortal existence. Okay, so I already kind of... Um, spoke on that one. So number two, a symbol for a separation between God and man. There's obviously uh, some separation between God and man. We as mortals cannot behold uh, God or angels with our mortal eyes, with our carnal eyes, right? We um, The veil has to be rent and we must be um, physically changed in order to behold uh, the face of God and live. Um, and there's some scriptures um, to back that up as well, which many of you probably already know. Um, but I want to look at a couple of different things here, and I want to focus on this word veil today and show you a couple things here. So I want to come over here. This is uh, the ChristianStudyLibrary.org um, has a, a little article here about the veil and uh, some of its meaning uh, throughout Jewish and Christian history. So the veil of separation, remember the the first definition that the church uses of a veil is a separator or a divider, right? So the veil of separation says, although they were beautiful to the eye, the veiled entrances of the tabernacle were not designed to be objects of admiration. The word veil in the Hebrew means to separate. That is what the three veils in the temple did. They acted, they acted as a barrier between God and man, shutting the man out and shutting God in. The first curtain, so we're going to get into the temple a little bit, the, the ancient tabernacle and temple, uh, whether it's Solomon's temple or the second temple, um, that was around during the time of Christ and the apostles. 
So there were multiple veils uh, throughout the tabernacle and the temple. We're going to learn a little bit about each of them, and then I'm going to hone in and focus on one in particular. So it says, The first curtain was at the gate of the outer court. It was over 7 feet high, 30 feet wide, and was supported by four pillars set in bronze sockets. The curtain separated the people from the outer court of the tabernacle. They could only enter when they brought their sacrifice to the gate as an offering for God upon the bronze altar. The second curtain guarded the door to the holy place. Uh, this is not the Holy of Holies. This is the, the inner court called the holy place. It says, This veil separated the people in the outer court of the tabernacle from the holy place, or the inner court. Only priests were permitted to enter into the holy place after they had made the proper sacrifice at the altar and washings at the bronze lo uh, laver. Um, and this was a... Um, it was a, it was basically like a, a bath of sorts um, where the, the priests would have to wash themselves. Um, then it goes on here. The third curtain divided the inside of the tabernacle into two rooms, the holy place or the inner court and the holy of holies, the innermost and most holy part of the temple or tabernacle. This veil separated the priests who were permitted to come into the holy place from the holy of holies in which was the very presence of God. Remember, all throughout ancient Israel, we have the Holy of Holies uh, was the most holy place in the temple and was where God would dwell. And that was uh, only the high priest was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur in order to perform the necessary uh, atoning sacrifices for all of Israel. And so... Um, this is literally where God would come, where Yahweh or Jehovah would come to the Holy of Holies and stand above the, um, the Ark of the Covenant um, and would meet with Moses or Aaron and, and, and the high priests, essentially. This is where heaven and earth met in the Holy of Holies. Um, it says... Um, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, and he only once a year on the great day of atonement. He could only enter if he carried with him blood from the bronze altar to present as an offering to God. That blood was to be placed on the mercy seat as a substitutionary atonement for his sins and the sins of the people. Okay, we're going to get a little bit more into the veil here, and then I'll go back and I kind of want to um, look at something. It says, woven into this veil, guarding the entrance of the Holy of Holies, were three huge figures of cherubim. Cherubim were the symbolic defenders of God's power and God's holiness, like the cherubim who guarded the entryway into the Garden of Eden. These cherubim stood guard over the entrance of the Holy of Holies, as if to say, thus far and no further. Communion in the very presence of God was to be found only in the Holy of Holies. God had told Moses, <coughs> excuse me, God had told Moses, that it was there that he would meet with the people. He would meet with the high priest from above the blood-sprinkled mercy seat, or the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, uh, I want to back up just a little bit. So we have in the tabernacle during the days of Moses, and later in the temple, we have essentially three veils that are uh, dividing or separating three different areas of the temple. You have the outer court, there's a, a temple uh, a veil, or curtain 
uh, from the outer court uh, or from outside to the outer court as you move in. Um, and all those coming in through that gateway um, had to bring with them a sacrifice in order to be permitted in. Um, and then once sacrifice was performed, then only those holding the Levitical priesthood, the Levites, and the priests could move on uh, between the outer court and through the veil into, or curtain, into the inner court or holy place, um, where further sacrifice and washings were to be performed. And then from there, uh, only the high priest could enter into the ve- through the veil into the Holy of Holies. So you have these three uh, levels, uh, so to speak, each separated by a veil. Um, and by the way, in the temple, each were separated by steps. You had to literally ascend uh, to the next level um, by walking up the stairs or up the steps to that next level and go through the, the curtain or veil into that next level. And think about the, the significance of that in our own temple experience, especially with the endowment. Um, we have essentially um, three separate, uh, well, t- if you want to get technical, there's uh, four, including the Garden of Eden. But moving from the Garden of Eden and being taken into the uh, telestial world, we must there learn to perform sacrifice before we can uh, be clothed with the robes of the Aaronic priesthood and receive the necessary covenants of the Aaronic priesthood in order to move on through the journey. Um, and then we must, again, make further covenant with the Melchizedek priesthood to move into the um, the second level, which is the terrestrial world, uh, where we are prepared to meet the Lord, and then he will bring us to the veil again before we can go to the celestial world. So think about this, this um, pattern here of ascending up the steps and going through the veil into the next level of existence or state of being uh, or realm, if, if you will. Very interesting, very symbolic. Um, and so there's a lot of really cool things there. We won't get like too far into the weeds and all of that today because I want to focus on the veil a little bit. But, man, just to read some of the stuff, like we've barely scratched the surface, and already there's so much symbolism and so much um, parallels and and patterns and things that we're seeing here um, just between modern temple worship and ancient temple worship. So we have these different veils, and I want to go over to this website here this is a Hebrew word lessons. This actually goes through the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and um, gives you uh, the definitions and uh, meaning of, of the various Hebrew words in the Hebrew Bible. And I found while I was reading up on the veil that there's actually four different um, words for veil in the Hebrew Bible. I want to look at the differences of them just briefly here. And like I said, I want to hone in on one specific uh, specific one. So uh, we have Uriah, Perochet, Masach, and Masbeh um, are all words signifying a curtain or veil, but they all have their own specific uh, meaning or specific use of that. Uh, of that. So um, right here it says curtain or veil, and, we, and it'll give the four. It says Uriah means tent curtains. 
These are the outer curtains of a tent. Okay, pretty simple. Um, then we have perochet, is the curtain as a divider. Then we have masach, is the entrance veil, which uh, is a hanging or a screen or covering. This is this would be the um, this would be the specific curtain or veil at the entrance of a building, including the temple or tabernacle. This is the the very entrance. Um, you go through this curtain. Then we have uh, masve which is a veil that you would wear or cover your head with. So like, for example, when um, a woman is married and she wears a veil uh, to cover her face until the appropriate time when she could be revealed, um, that would be the use of the word masbe. <clears throat> and again, uh, we're going to go through a couple of these here and then hone in on one specific one. I think you guys already know where I'm going here. We have Uriah which is the outer curtain of the tabernacle. So this is the, this is essentially when you get to the tabernacle or the temple, uh, this is the curtain of the entrance that you walk through to get to the outer court. Um, I won't go much more into that. Um, you can read this whole long thing all about it um, and several other scriptures that use this specific word for veil. But I want to come down here. Let's see. Here we go. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so I want to come down here to this specific word for veil, perochet. Um, in, in other places I've seen um, people um, uh, say periket, um, and it's, the, it's the simply, essentially the same thing. Um, but I, I learning Hebrew, I'm going to learn it the way that it's written out and transliterated for me. And so I would say perochet. Um, but if you hear others say periketh or periketh, that's also the same thing. Um, so I'll just say perochet here. It says another word that is often translated as veil or curtain is perochet. It comes from the root word perek, meaning to break apart or divide with severity. Um, a perochet breaks apart space. It is essentially a space breaker. So think about um, not just the term divider or separator, but this is something that is um, separates not just um, rooms or whatever, but this separates space. I could also say that it separates realms or worlds. Um, and you'll see why in a second. It says the tabernacle was divided up into different spaces. As seen above in Exodus chapter 26, uh, outlined the organization of the tent curtain walls, the Uriah. But further down in the chapter, we read about a veil, the perochet, that broke up the space. The veil created a partition within the tabernacle specifically between the holy place or inner court and the most holy place or the holy of holies, the place where Yahweh's presence in the Ark of the Testimony was housed. So the, the word perochet is specific to the one veil that separated the inner court from the Holy of Holies. That, that's that specific use of that word, perochet, is that one particular veil, uh, whether we're talking about the tabernacle or the temple. And so if we, we talk about the modern temples that we use today for our worship, like in the endowment session, for example, um, the veil that we would go through at the end of the, um, the endowment uh, ceremony um, when you're presented to the veil before you can enter into the celestial kingdom, essentially, the celestial world, that particular veil 
would be Perochet. And then it gives a, a list of scriptures here where you can see the specific uses of these different words, um, and th these are the specific verses for Perochet, talking about the veil of the Holy of Holies. So now that we've kind of defined or, or figured out which specific word is used for this specific veil, now I want to look at something that I think is really cool, and this is really what um, I wanted to share with you guys because I thought it was really interesting. Um, like I said, I am not um, an expert in Hebrew. I'm learning. Um, but one thing I am definitely not an, an, an expert in is Paleo-Hebrew or Ancient Hebrew. We know that the, the version of Hebrew that is used today modern in modern times and um, and for, for many centuries is kind of this um, more modernized version of Hebrew. <clears throat> we sometimes call it uh, block Hebrew. Let me see if I can show you a... Let me see if I can show you some Hebrew letters here. Actually, you know what? Um, here we go. Okay, so here's... Perochet, this is Strong's Concordance um, Bible here. So Perochet means a curtain or veil. Um, here, here we would have the original word Perochet in Hebrew. Um, oh, and actually I have it right here. Okay, so right here, here's Perochet in Hebrew, um, which means the veil to the Holy of Holies. So this version of Hebrew, the, the way that these letters are formed um, in a modern sense are called block Hebrew. We're going to look at Paleo-Hebrew, which I think is just fascinating. And um, something I want to share, like when I was kind of looking over Paleo-Hebrew and trying to understand um, how it was formed and, and all that, these are essentially pictographs. They're pictures of things that have meaning. And anytime you wanted to form a word to give meaning to a word, uh, or, or to define something or someone um, with uh, naming it, um, you would connect many of these pictographs, these pictures, to form one uh, one word. And I'm going to show exactly what I mean. So if we look here, this is the ancient Hebrew letters, or Paleo-Hebrew. Let me blow it up a little bit for you. Okay. So it might be a little bit too big because it's starting to get fuzzy and not as clear. But you'll say ancient Hebrew letters or Paleo-Hebrew alphabet. So we have these different characters here. And each character here um, is specific to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So anybody who's somewhat, even somewhat familiar with the Hebrew al alphabet, we have the different letters of the alphabet, right? Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav, Zayin, Chet, Tet, and so on, right? Well, these are the ancient Hebrew pictures that were associated with those letters. And so anytime they wanted to put together a word from the different letters, they would take the letters or pictures that had the specific meanings that they needed and would put them together to form the word to give the overarching meaning of this thing that they were trying to name and define. Um, I hope that made sense. So I have here, let's see. Da, da, da. Okay, here we go. Perfect. So this is, if we look over here on the far right, there's Latin, then moving inward, there's Greek, 
modern Hebrew. So here's what we would call, uh, if you see the modern Hebrew here, let me blow this up a little bit and move it over. Okay, modern Hebrew, you see letter, name, and sound. So on the left-hand side of letters, these are all the block Hebrew. This is what the Hebrew um, alphabet looks like today and has looked like for some time now. Okay, we have the alphabet starting up here with Aleph, Bet, Gimel, uh, Dalet, He, Vav, etc. Now, if I move this over, okay, we have the ancient Semitic or Hebrew language um, with their specific pictures or pictographs and their meanings. So we have here, if you get on the very, very far left side, you see early. Uh, early Hebrew, then Middle Hebrew, then Late Hebrew. And Late Hebrew obviously looks much more like our modern uh, Hebrew letters. So I want to start on this far end here with Early Hebrew, or Paleo-Hebrew. We have L, which would also have been basically Aleph, um, Bet, Gam, Dal, He, Wav, uh, Zan, and Het, and so on. And, and most of the sounds when you sound out these letters, are very similar to Hebrew today with some minor differences. Um, but I want to look at what some of these letters mean. So if we start at the very top, um, for L, or what would it also be Aleph, uh, it's a picture of an ox head, which means strong, power, powerful, or leader. Um, then we have Bet, which means the, a tent floor plan or a house. Um, and, and in use, you would use it to mean either a house or a family or in. Um, and you can see here uh, on the screen the different uh, meanings of each of these letters because each letter had a specific meaning. And you would simply put together the specific pictures with their associated meanings, and you connect them with other pictures and their meanings in order to form a new word that gave meaning to the thing that you were trying to name. So you can look all the way down here. Here's the alphabet. I want to look at a couple things here. So we have Parakhet as the name for the veil of the Holy of Holies within the temple. I want to look at um, something here. So here I'm going to go back to this so you can see it. There's Pe, um, because you read Hebrew from right to left. So this letter here, Pe, then moving in is Resh or Rash then Kaf, and then uh, Tav. So you have these four letters here that make up the word Perelchet. Um, so if we go back to our example here, or our ancient Hebrew um, alphabet here, let's find each of these letters and what their pictures were and what those pictures meant. So... Perochet starts with uh, the letter Pe. So let's come down here. Okay, so we he have down here, um, let's see. If, I don't know if you can follow or see my cursor on the screen here. We have Pe. Here's Pe. Let's move over here and see what it was. Oh, too far. Blew it up a little too far. Okay, there we go. That's better. Okay, so we have Pe over here. For Perelchet, this is the first letter, Pei. We come over here, see what see what the actual um, pictograph was in ancient Hebrew. It's this little thing here that doesn't look like much. It's just kind of this like I don't even know what you want to call it. 
Um, if you look at this right here, it's basically kind of like a upside down Nike sign in, in some regard. Um, that's not totally accurate, but you know what I see. And you, you can see this as well if you're looking on the screen. Um, but this picture means mouth, which means to um, open, to blow, scatter. It also means edge. And actually, um, I was doing more reading on this. If I go over to this picture here, it's a little bit better, so um, or maybe easier to see. So here's pay. There we go. Here's pay. Here's the ancient Hebrew uh, picture for pay. And it's the mouth, which means a word or to speak. It also means to converse. Um, and, in, and depending upon the context, it can also mean to command, right? Because you command things or instruct things with by speaking. Um, God commanded the uh, various elements to be formed to create the universe, to create the earth and give it form and all that. Um, and he did so by commanding the elements with the word of his mouth, right? So we have this idea here, pay means mouth, but it also means... Or the the sign is a mouth, which means word, speak, mouth, command, etc. Okay, so that's pe. That's the first letter of paroket. Now we have resh. So come down here. Here's resh, and you can see it down at the bottom here. Here's resh, which is made by a picture of the head of a person. So that's that's supposed to be the head of a person, right? It's their neck and their head. Um, and I don't know if this part here is supposed to be like a hat, but the first time I saw it, I thought that this was a guy wearing a hat. I don't know if that's correct. Um, but in any case, resh mean is, is made by a picture representing the head of a person, which also funny enough means head or person. It can also mean first. Um, so that's very interesting as well. In some contexts, uh, I've read that it can also mean like uh, to lead or a leader, similar to um, L or Aleph, uh, which is the ox head that we looked at a minute ago. Um, but maybe it's slightly different or used in different contexts, and I'm not entirely sure how that works. But in any case, what we do know um, from some of my reading here is resh means the head, a person, and it can also mean first or beginning. Um, so we have pay, then resh for perochet. The next, uh, letter is cough. So if we come over here, if you can see my cursor here, the little arrow, this is cough. Um, and I'll show you, let's see over here as well. So we did pay, we did resh. Okay. So here for resh, we have the head of a man. It means head first, top or beginning. Um, then we have cough. Okay, so here's the modern Hebrew cough, and here's the ancient Hebrew cough, which is made by the open palm of the hand. That's the picture for cough, is the open palm of the hand, which means to bend, to open, to allow, to tame. Um, and if we come over here, cough is the palm of hand, which means to open. Um, I've also seen uh, some instances where people um, or, or articles online have also said that as part of the open hand, it doesn't just mean to open, but it can also mean to command, 
um, to give a command or something, uh, something similar to that effect. So we have here the open palm means to allow or open or bend or tame. Um, but we're going to stick with the common denominator here, which means to open. Um, and I would even say, you know, to allow or to command would be um, a, a common meaning of, of this as well. So that's cough. So that's the third letter of the word parakhet. The very last letter, and this, this is going to be really cool. The very last letter of parakhet is a letter down here, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, tav. And here's tav here. In ancient Hebrew, if we come over here to the left-hand side of the screen, uh, ta or tav, the picture is made by crossed sticks which make a cross. And what do they mean? It means a mark, a sign, a signal or monument, but it also means in ancient Hebrew, specifically in the Hebrew Bible, it's used to mean a covenant. A mark or sign denotes a covenant. Um, if we come over here to this one over here, we come down here, here's Tav which is literally made by the sign of a cross, which means a mark, a sign, or covenant. Okay, that's, that's incredible. So I want to put these together. Um, go back to here. So if we're looking at Perochet right here, we have Pe, Resh, Kaf, and Tav. If we put them together, we literally have... We, we start to see this picture in our minds. We're not looking just at a veil or a curtain anymore, but we start to get some meaning of what this curtain or veil meant to the ancient Israelites, to the ancient Hebrew people um, during the time of the tabernacle and the temple periods. So you guys are probably already putting this together in your mind. I don't even need to say it. But think about the, the meaning of each of these letters put together and the picture that forms. You have literally a, a mouth that speaks or commands or instructs. You have uh, the head of a man or the beginning um, or the first. You have, um, for cough, you have the open palm of the hand, meaning to open uh, or command, and you have tav, or ta, which literally is a cross, meaning the sign, or mark, or signifier, uh, or covenant. So you put all these together, what does this veil really represent to the ancient Israelites, and what it should represent to each of us as Latter-day Saints, especially those of us who have gone through the temple? Think about that. That's this is incredible. This is um, this is like mind blowing stuff here, um, and I've barely scratched the surface. Um, I don't know much more than what I've just shared with you, other than uh, a few little things I've read here and there. But this, in and of itself, gives so much more depth of meaning to what the veil represents, um, anciently and modern. And I think sometimes we think of the veil in really simple terms 
as just it's it's just this curtain thing in the temple that separates one room for the, from the other room that's supposed to be symbolic of separating kind of our mortal world with the immortal uh, eternal world of the celestial kingdom right um, that's kind of the the general understanding that we have as latter-day saints um, but there's so much more to it than that and when the ancient Israelites, I, I can I can just picture in my mind what they must have been uh, doing in order to come up with the specific word in Hebrew for this curtain that was going to be placed between the inner court and the Holy of Holies, or essentially from uh, separating man from from the realm which God uh, abides in. Um. I don't know the history of all this, of, of when these words were created, but I can only picture in my mind um, going back to the days of Moses and maybe even further back to um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This, I, they, they needed a word to signify this specific veil or curtain that would separate worlds. And the, the only... Um, the only letters or pictures in the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew alphabet that held the appropriate meanings to be put together to create this new word for Perlket or for the veil um, had to signify its importance. I want to look at, if I go back here, um, let's see, I want to look over here, come back here to veil. We have uh, its meaning in the scriptures as a divider, separating the areas of the tabernacle or temple, a symbol for a separation between God and man, a thin cloth worn by people to cover their face or head, and a God-given forgetfulness that blocks people's memories of the premortal existence. And then we have several different um, verses of scripture to look at that signify, or that have the word veil in it, um, in this particular use. Um, I've pulled up a, a handful of scriptures um, and I kind of want to look through them just a little bit. Um, but first I want to look at this, this here. So I had to do a little bit of investigation, uh, so to speak, because, uh, we know that the majority of the new Testament was written in Greek. And so, um, I, I wanted to make sure that I was understanding this correctly between the Hebrew Bible um, that was written in Hebrew versus the New Testament, which was written in Greek. Now, obviously, the Old Testament was written in Greek as well, but with the uh, Septuagint um, text, which is actually written or recorded before the uh, Masoretic Hebrew text that is currently used today as the Hebrew Bible. Um, but in any case, I wanted to make sure that the words were correct, that the Hebrew word perochet, meaning specifically the veil of the Holy of Holies, um, and the Greek word um, for veil used in the New Testament um, were the same word. I needed to make I needed to double check that they were the same use of the word. So here we have Matthew twenty seven verse fifty one, um, and we could see also Mark fifteen and Luke twenty three. This is specifically when the Savior is crucified on the cross. Remember, cross also means covenant in ancient Hebrew. Um, and this is when he was crucified, and the, the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. 
uh, when Christ uh, was crucified. And so I had to make sure, and I used the uh, Strong's Concordance, wherever it is, this is here. I used the Strong's Concordance um, Bible Dictionary, uh, which gives the Hebrew, English, um, Greek, and um, Latin uh, definitions or, or dictionaries for each of the words in the Bible, uh, both the Old and New Testament. And it, and it turns out, um, as my suspicion, suspicions were correct, that the specific use of the veil of the temple that is rent at the death of Christ on the cross is the same exact uh, Greek word, meaning the same uh, parochet or veil of the Holy of Holies uh, in the Hebrew. And so it, we are talking about the same exact um, veil here. Um, the reason I wanted to check that out was because we have this veil that is being rent at the death of Christ in the temple. Um, and it would be interesting if the specific he, or, uh, the specific Greek word for veil um, in this uh, New Testament context with the veil of the temple being rent at, de- at the death of Christ if it was a different Hebrew word, meaning uh, one of the other curtains in the temple, not the curtain at the temple, at the Holy of Holies. That would, ma- that would be incredibly important um, for us to discover and, and to learn. Um, and that would have some big um, implications into what that means, I think, personally, um, for modern Christianity and their dismissal of temples today. But, uh, alas, I, I was, um, I was unsurprised to find that the specific Greek word, and don't ask me to pronounce it, I can't, I don't know Greek, I barely understand Hebrew, um, but the specific Greek word for veil that was rent at the death of Christ is the specific word that means parochet or the Hebrew word for veil of the Holy of Holies. So it is the same. So we're, when the Christ was crucified on the cross, um, it is the veil at the Holy of Holies that is rent from top to bottom. And I want to give a brief word on that because this is a common um, complaint or um I, yeah, I guess complaint, I guess, uh, that most modern Christians have with Latter-day Saints and our use um, of temples today is when Christ had died on the cross, <clears throat> uh, the veil of the, the Holy of Holies in the, temp- in the temple was rent from top to bottom. It split open. And by the way, this, this um, veil was four inches thick. That's how thick this veil was. It was very thick and heavy, heavy <clears throat> and it could not be easily rent by man. Uh, you would have had something very sharp to do that. Um, and the fact that there was an earthquake at Christ's death and the, the uh, veil of the temple was rent is very important and significant. There's a reason why the New Testament writers kept that part of the record in their uh, in the Gospels. Um, and our Christian... Uh, friends will use this verse or these verses about the veil being rent in the temple at Christ's death to signify the end of needing temples. That Christ had come, he had performed the atonement uh, by sacrificing himself, 
and through his sacrifice as an infinite atonement for all mankind, um, the veil of the temple is rent, meaning that now the Holy of Holies is exposed to the rest of the world, or now uh, a better way of saying that is the rest of the world now has access to the presence of God because of the death of Christ. And so therefore, we no longer need this ministerial or administrative uh, priesthood to perform specific sacrifices and offerings to the Lord in order to make atonement, because the infinite and eternal atonement of Jesus Christ had, um, had done away with those other offerings and sacrifices. And therefore, we, through the, the death of Christ, all the world has access to the presence of God. Um, and that is a uh, fair criticism. Uh, I, I think it's a fair, a fair assessment to make um, just on its surface. Um, however, there are some problems with that, um, which maybe I'll, I'll do a video on at some point. Um, but, you know, it, from a, just an outside perspective, someone who is not la a Latter-day Saint, who, who is maybe an evangelical uh, Protestant, looking at these verses, and then couple that with a couple verses from Hebrews, where we learn that Christ himself, his body that he gave for us, was the temple, or what was the, the veil of the temple. And um, the writer of Hebrews, whether that's Paul or somebody else, um, use, uses Christ's body to represent the veil, um, in some of these verses. And so the giving up of his life, of his physical body, um, at his death did away with the necessity of temple offerings and temple sacrifices, and therefore kind of gets rid of the need for temples altogether. Because if you don't have the need to go to a place and offer specific offerings and sacrifices anymore, then what's the purpose of that place? Um, some of the problems we might have with that interpretation comes from the fact that um, the New Testament writers, Paul, Peter, um, and even uh, Luke in the, in the Gospels and in Acts, talk about the fact that the apostles continued to go to the temple and worship in the temple and preach from the temple uh, even after the death and resurrection of the Savior. And it's at the temple uh, on Pentecost where the Holy Spirit was uh, poured out upon them um, in a miraculous way um, and where they finally were endowed or imbued with power from on high to go forth and preach the gospel. Um, and they continued to serve and worship in, uh, at the temple long after, and there are many prophecies both in the Old and New Testaments, um, not to say anything about um, Latter-day Scripture uh, in LDS canon, but just from the Bible alone, both the Old and New Testament reference a temple being built in these latter days prior to the second coming of Christ, and that Christ himself, when he comes, he will rule and reign from the temple. And all of the nations of the earth will go up to the temple uh, every year during the Feast of Tabernacles and offer sacrifices and offerings. Now, what those sacrifices and offerings are um, will be yet to be seen, um, but that poses a very um, strong rebuttal to the to the modern day Christian 
critique that we no longer need temples when Christ himself will come and rule and reign from the temple in Jerusalem and Zion. Um, just just my, my first two cents without doing a whole lot of digging on that. But I want to think of this, this veil. You have the specific letters or characters that are put together to mean veil. You have the mouth to speak. You have uh, to speak or command or converse. You have the head of man, a person, uh, or even the first or the beginning. You have uh, kaf, which is the open palm of the hand, which means to open. And then you have tav, the, the, the sign or covenant. All of those meanings are contained in the meaning for the word veil. I want you to think about, for those of you who have been through the temple, and if you have not been through the temple, I um, would admonish you and encourage you to do whatever you need to do in your life to prepare yourself to go to the temple and receive those ordinances and covenants for yourself. Um, to stay on the covenant path. As we get closer to the Savior's second coming, uh, the world will continue to go down a bad path. It will continue to become wicked, more wicked than it already is, if you can even imagine. Um, but we, as disciples of Christ, need to follow the covenant path back to the presence of our Father in heaven. And we do that through the atonement of Christ and through the appropriate ordinances and covenants that we make with him. And I've, talking, I've talked uh, at length on previous videos about the importance of the covenants and ordinances that we perform and make um, that are associated with the temple. And I'm going to continue to beat on that drum because um, this, this world is deteriorating quickly. And if we want to present ourselves as prepared and worthy to meet the Lord at his coming and to enter into the rest of the Lord, to enter into his abode and be in his presence, we need to keep ourselves clean and unspotted from the sins of the world. We need to heed the call to come out of Babylon, to come out of the world And we do that through exercising our faith in Christ and his atoning sacrifice, repenting of our sins, and then receiving all of the necessary ordinances. Not that the ordinances themselves are what's necessary. It's the covenants that we make with God through those ordinances that is necessary. And God has outlined all of these covenants for us as a pattern or order that we are to partake in to bring us closer to his presence and to make us more like him by obedience to those covenants that we make. And the, the ordinance that is associated with each of the covenants that we make has a specific sign um, and, and sign and token and name associated with it that are specific and have deep meaning um, and bring us um, closer to our Heavenly Father through our ascension into the various degrees of glory, into the different worlds, ter telestial, terrestrial, and celestial, 
um, and allow us to partake of different blessings. We think of the specific signs and uh, ordinances and, and tokens and things necess- uh, as, as a necessary part of the Aaronic priesthood and then the Melchizedek priesthood. All of these things build on each other uh, just as we ascend the steps from the outer court to the inner court and from the inner court to the Holy of Holies. Um, little by little, we make our way closer to the veil where we can once again be presented to our Heavenly Father and come back into his presence. So I want to talk about a couple things here. So we have some verses of Scripture here. Let's see. Some verses of Scripture that mention the veil and its importance and kind of what it's for. So this is Doctrine and Covenants 67, um, verse 10. I'll read a few verses here. It says, Again, verily I say unto you that it is your privilege, this is the Savior speaking, it is your privilege and a promise that I, the Savior, give unto you that have been ordained unto this ministry, that inasmuch as you strip yourselves from jealousies and fears and humble yourselves before me, for ye are not sufficiently humble, the veil shall be rent, and ye shall see me and know that I am, not with the carnal, neither in the natural mind, but with the spiritual. For no man has seen God at any time in the flesh except quickened by the Spirit of God. Neither can any natural man abide the presence of God, neither after the carnal mind. Ye are not able to abide the presence of God now, neither the ministering of angels. Wherefore, continue in patience until ye are perfected. Let not your minds turn back, and when ye are worthy, in mine own due time ye shall see and know that which was conferred upon you by the hands of my servant Joseph Smith, Jr. Amen. So this is at a time when some of the general authorities or leaders of the church were having some uh, some issues, some problems. Um, there was some uh, discussions, there were disagreements, um, some infighting of kind of what to do over a few different matters. And I, and I won't get into that, but it's important to know the context of some of these verses here. So the general authorities, along with Joseph Smith, were kind of struggling to figure some things out, and that's when this is given. Um, So there's a need to strip ourselves from jealousies and fears and humble ourselves before God. Um, And when we do, once we have been ordained to the ministry, once we've been ordained to the holy priesthood, and I would say um, for women, uh, that includes the temple ordinances. You receive power from the priesthood um, via the covenants that you make and the ordinances that are performed in the temple. You take, you are partakers of the, um, of the power of God or the, what we might call the priesthood. Um, and so for, for men and women who have made those priesthood covenants, um, we have access, as we live up to those covenants, we have access to the power that comes from God. Um, and that's really what priesthood power is. It's God's power that he grants unto us when we fulfill our side of the agreement or covenant um, by keeping his commandments. 
once we've humbled ourselves sufficiently after receiving those those covenants um, by ordination, uh, the veil shall be rent and we shall see him, we'll see Christ and know that he is. Um, but our bodies must be physically changed in order in in the flesh if we're to see God. They must our bodies must be quickened by the spirit. Um, for the natural man, the natural, physical, mortal, carnal body cannot abide the presence of God. It has to be changed. And we see that in Scripture through examples of many individuals in Scripture who were translated or transfigured or had to go undergo some sort of process by which they could behold the face of God and converse with him. Um, it says in 13, you're not able to, to abide the presence of God now, neither the ministering of angels. Wherefore, continue in patience until you are perfected. Let not your minds turn back, and when you're worthy, in mine own due time, you shall see and know that which was conferred upon you. Um, so we need to press forward. It's, it's pressing forward with an eye single to the glory of God. It's enduring to the end. Once we've received baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost, once we've received the temple ordinances and covenants, we have to continue to perfect ourselves over time and press forward enduring to the end. And when we are worthy and when it is the Lord's own due time, then he will reveal himself to us. Um, I have more to say on that, um, but I'll, I'll stop there for a minute. Um, let's come over here to verse or to section 38 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Similar but slightly different um, context here. It says, but the day soon cometh. Uh, oh, excuse me. I'll start in verse 7. It says, but behold, verily, verily, I say unto you that mine eyes are upon you. I am in your midst, and ye cannot see me. Think about the veil uh, as a separator between the worlds, between our you know, mortal world and the Im uh, eternal world or the celestial world or the spirit world even. Um, we're not able to see spirits and angels, though we know they're all around us. Um, it says, I am in your midst, and ye cannot see me, but the day soon cometh that ye shall see me, and know that I am. For the veil of darkness shall soon be rent, and he that is not purified shall not abide the day. Wherefore, gird up your loins, and be prepared. Behold, the kingdom is yours, and the enemy shall not overcome." Um, we have to be cleansed of our sin. We have to be purified by the Holy Spirit um, through accepting the atonement of Christ and, and, and true repentance uh, and humility. We're, we're purified and sanctified so that the veil of darkness can be rent. When Christ comes again at the second coming, um, it will only be those left alive on the earth who can abide at least the terrestrial glory. Remember, all the wicked will be destroyed at his coming, and only those um, who are good people, honest people, um, of all different religions and belief systems, but only those who are truly pure in heart um, can abide the day. Only they will be around and alive to have the veil taken from off of us to see the Savior coming in his glory, and to be in his presence for the millennium. If I go over here to Alma, um, this is Alma chapter 12, 
And there's actually several verses in Alma between um, Alma like 12, 13, um, and a couple other places as well, I think, um, four maybe. Um, but this is Alma 12, and this sums up um, kind of a lot of what Alma has to say about this topic. But it, for context, Alma is debating with Zeezrom. This is before Zeezrom had repented and um, become a disciple of Christ. And um, and he, he was a lawyer, and he was questioning Alma and Amulek. Um, and this is what uh, Alma has to say a little bit about this topic. Um, he says, And now Alma began to expound these things unto him, unto Zeezrom, saying, it is given unto many to know the mysteries of God, or the Doctrine and Covenants calls them the mysteries of the kingdom. The New Testament, the Savior calls them the mysteries of the kingdom, or the mysteries of the kingdom of God, when he's specifically talking to his disciples, or the, the apostles, and giving them, not just commandments, but giving them, or ordaining them with power um, of the priesthood, power from on high. Um so if you look up like Matthew 16 or 18 and a few other chapters in the, the Gospels, when the Savior is telling the apostles that he's giving them uh, power, um, he also sometimes mentions that this power is to, is power over the, the kingdom, the power to know the kingdom of God or to have some sort of power associated with the kingdom of God and the mysteries of God. And here Alma is explaining the same concept. He says, It's given to many to know the mysteries of God. Nevertheless, they are laid under a strict command that they shall not impart, only according to the portion of his word which, doth grant unto, which he doth grant unto the children of men, according to the heed and diligence which they give unto him. And therefore he that will harden his heart, the same receiveth the lesser portion of the word. And he that will not harden his heart, or, you know, he who is humble, to him is given the greater portion of the word until it is given unto him to know the mysteries of God until he know them in full. And they that will harden their hearts, to them is given the lesser portion of the word until they know nothing concerning his mysteries. And then they are taken captive by the devil and led by his will down to destruction. Now this is what is meant by the chains of hell. So the chains of hell, being brought down to hell, comes from us refusing to receive uh, the word of the Lord and his mysteries. By shutting ourselves off from accepting and um, holding on to the, the things which God is willing to impart unto us, the knowledge that he gives us, the light and knowledge. By refusing the light and knowledge, we are then made dark and cannot abide the light. That is what is meant by the chains of hell, as Alma says. When I think about the great... Um, the great blessing that is the Book of Mormon and the restoration of, of um, the church and kingdom of God. The contributions made by the Book of Mormon are great. Um, the Doctrine and Covenants is great. 
Pearl of Great Price is great. And think about why it's called the Pearl of Great Price. Um, of all of the things that we learn from the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants, um, some of this stuff here, particularly um, some of these words by Alma, and certainly chapter 13 of Alma, um, and several other chapters of, of Scripture that are, uh, that are similar. If I had to, if you had to ask me what I think the most important part of the Book of Mormon is, I don't know that I could give you a specific verse or chapter to read. Um, certainly the, the chapters of the Savior's coming to the Nephites are incredibly important. That's probably the, that's, that's the climax of the Book of Mormon. That is the whole kind of kit and caboodle, uh, so to speak, of, of the, the story of this group of people and their posterity is the Savior's uh, personal ministry to them, which clears up so many other doctrines and things that we would not have um, if all we had was the Bible. But next to that, hand-in-hand with that, to me, some of the greatest and most important concepts that need to be learned and studied that we receive from the Book of Mormon in plainer, um, clearer detail than anywhere else in the Bible do we find this concept here of learning line upon line, precept upon precept, here little and there a little, until we know the mysteries of the kingdom of God in full. This concept here is so incredibly important. This is the reason for the temple. This is the reason for the priesthood and its ordinances and the covenants that are associated with them is to bring us closer to the presence of God little by little, line upon line, precept upon precept. And this concept is stated more clearly in the Book of Mormon than anywhere else in Scripture. And not only is it stated explicitly by prophets like Alma and others in the Book of Mormon, but the pattern is given more clearly in the Book of Mormon than in any other book of Scripture. What do I mean by that? Let's, let's think about something for a second. Uh, we know that the veil is often symbolized or represents the separation of God and man. Um, we know from some of these verses that we read um, that, you know, the Savior is in our midst, the, the angels and spirit, the Holy Spirit and, and other ministering spirits are in our midst. They're all around us, but we don't see them, and we have a hard time connecting with them if we're not sufficiently humble and... Um, and, and worthy of receiving it, right? But yet they're still all around us. The, the spirit world is, uh, has been said by many presidents of the church to be here. The spirit world is here. It's just there's a veil over us that here in mortality, in our mortal lives, we, we don't see it. Um, in order for us to receive an angelic visitor, a heavenly messenger, whether that's an angel whether that's the Spirit, whether that's the Savior himself, the veil has to be rent to some degree. 
it has to be opened. Think about that word paraketh or parachet in Hebrew. We converse with the Lord through the veil, and the veil is opened to us, whereby we make a covenant with God to enter back into his presence. Think about the examples of the various prophets throughout the Book of Mormon, and the Bible too. This is true of the Bible um, as well. But especially the Book of Mormon seems to be especially clear about this. Think about all of the prophets in the Book of Mormon, starting with Lehi to Nephi and so on, and their experience with angelic ministers, and angelic visitors, heavenly messengers, and the ministration of the Savior himself. Lehi and Nephi saw the Savior. Jacob saw the Savior. Alma saw angels and the Savior. Amulek. Um, uh, Nephi um, in, in Third Nephi. And Helaman. Um, all of these prophets, think about Mormon and Moroni. Think about Ether. Um, these, the brother of Jared, one of the coolest examples in all of Scripture, I will fight anyone. The brother of Jared is one of the most awesome prophets and one of the most uh, awesome accounts in all of Scripture about this specific subject. Um, one of my favorites. All of these prophets who had a visit, a personal visit and witness of Christ himself, the veil was rent. And think about the specific context in which each of these took place. Lehi and Nephi were humble and were praying to know the will of God concerning them, to receive further light and knowledge and help. They needed help as well um, for various things that were, were happening. And it's through these experiences that the heavens were open to them. The veil was taken from off of their eyes and they were able to see the presence of God and angels and the Holy Spirit and actually have uh, visions and, um, and be taken into the presence of God to have a sure witness. The brother of Jared, I want to go to this real quick. In Ether, this is Ether chapter 3. This is the brother of Jared's experience. Um, we know that uh, earlier in chapter 2 and 3, they were preparing the barges. They needed light. Um, the brother of Jared takes these stones, and uh, he prays to God um, and asks for help. Um, it says, and when he had said these words... Behold, the Lord showed himself unto him and said, Because thou knowest these things, ye are redeemed from the fall. Therefore ye are brought back into my presence. Therefore I show myself unto you. Behold, I am he who was prepared from the foundation of the world to redeem my people. Behold, I am Jesus Christ. I am the Father and the Son. In me shall all mankind have life, and that eternally. Even they who shall believe on my name and they shall become my sons and my daughters. 
if I go down a little bit further, here's Moroni um, interjecting here. And now, as I, Moroni, said, I could not make a full account of these things which are written. Therefore, it sufficeth me to say that Jesus showed himself unto this man in the spirit, even after the manner and in the likeness of the same body, even as he showed himself unto the Nephites. And he ministered unto him, even as he ministered unto the Nephites. And all this, that this man might know that he was God, because of the many great works which the Lord had showed unto him. And here's something very important. Here's what I want to get across here in verse 19. It says, And because of the knowledge of this man, the brother of Jared, because of the knowledge of this man, he could not be kept from beholding within the veil. And he saw the finger of Jesus, which when he saw, he fell with fear, for he knew that it was the finger of the Lord. And he had faith no longer, for he knew nothing doubting. Wherefore, having this perfect knowledge of God, he could not be kept from within the veil. Therefore he saw Jesus, and he did minister unto him. This is the same pattern that we see with all of these prophets who have this specific visitation of the Lord. They are seeking further light and knowledge, and they have sufficiently humbled themselves and sacrificed their will to God's. That is the pattern and by fulfilling the pattern set out by the Savior himself, this priesthood pattern of making and receiving covenants and keeping those covenants line upon line and receiving that pattern and fulfilling that pattern, they receive further light and knowledge until the veil cannot be kept uh, over them. And now the veil is rent and they have a personal visitation of the Lord. This is the entire purpose of the priesthood. I'll talk about this in much greater detail in another episode. Um, but for more on this, I would suggest studying the temple, studying the, the priesthood um, ordinances and the covenants associated with them in the temple, um, studying the veil. Think about the veil when you are brought to the veil. This is the very end of the endowment ceremony. I want to be careful about how I, how I talk about this. But think about when you're presented to the veil. There's still part of the ordinance or covenant that has yet to be made. We get all through all the stages of the endowment ceremony up to this point, and there's still one uh, final part of the, the covenant that has to be made. Um, and you can't receive it until you get to the veil. So what are you doing at the veil? You're, be, you're being presented to the veil, having accepted and received all of the light and knowledge that God has given unto you up to that point in your life. And now seek further light and knowledge from God that only he can give and only you can receive. And when you are sufficiently humble and are um, brought to that point, only then can the veil be opened unto you and can you converse with the Lord and can you receive the further light and knowledge that he has promised to give you upon your obedience to him. And only when you have fulfilled that order and pattern and have kept that covenant 
can you be admitted into his presence? I think I'll stop myself there. That's all I want to say today. But I wanted to talk about this because I think it's incredibly important. I, I would suggest going and reading through all of the different uh, instances in the scriptures, particularly the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord talks about the veil, or he talks about uh, receiving further light and knowledge, or receiving a personal visitation, um, where he talks about the veil and its purpose, the temple. Go study through, through some of these things, and um, you'll see a pattern is forming here. And the temple and its ordinances are meant to be that pattern for us to follow so that we can have the same exact experience that the brother of Jared had, that Lehi and Nephi had, that Mormon and Moroni had, that the apostles had um, when they are brought back into the presence of the Father or when they have a personal visitation from the Savior because they have sufficiently humbled themselves and have shown themselves to be um, righteous and worthy and willing to sacrifice their own will for the for the will of God, and keep all his commandments. Um, then they are, uh, the, the veil is rent, and they are brought back into the presence of the Father. Study this pattern. It is a pattern that you will see all throughout Scripture, and that is the purpose, I think, to some degree, of the Book of Mormon, and why it was so necessary for the Book of Mormon to be, um, for the Book of Mormon to be brought out in, in these last days and restored because the Book of Mormon more clearly than any other book of scripture plainly outlines this pattern that we are to follow if we are to enter into the kingdom of God um, and receive that that sure witness of the of the Lord. That's all I'll say about that, but I, I thought that this Discussion about the veil and what it means in Hebrew and its its uh, ancient Hebrew meaning, I think is so interesting um, and really cool. And I and I wanted to share that with you guys. And if you guys have any further, um, uh, if you guys know any more about this subject, I would love to hear about it in the comment section. If you like this video, please go ahead and like the video and share it with others. Um, and if you haven't yet, um, consider subscribing to the channel. Um, and until next time, bye.